Hello, thanks for listening to this Aspen podcast discussing the paper Association Between Goal Nutrition and Intubation in Patients with Bronchiolitis on Non-Invasive Ventilation, a Retrospective Cohort Study. My name is Kenneth Christopher, and I am Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Sabrina Huck from the Department of Pediatrics at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. Dr. Huck is a pediatrician who specializes in critical care medicine. Dr. Huck is the first author of the JPEN original research article we will discuss. Dr. Huck, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The first question I want to ask is what motivated you to do the study? So I noticed that there was a lot of feeding discrepancy when I rotated in different pediatric intensive care units all throughout residency. During my fellowship, I even noticed that there was a discrepancy between different providers and different feeding styles. So I wanted to see if there was a best or recommended kind of way to feed these children. I wanted to do a broad literature review and then also kind of see how that goes into my own project. So the best studies I find are the ones that come out of clinical observations. And sometimes it's the most surprising findings because it's either confirming the bias, it's refuting the bias, it's confirming what we're already doing, but also illuminating potential ways of doing things that nobody ever thought about before. So congratulations to um, coming at this study in terms of the clinical problem kind of angle. Why did you choose your specific study design? I did this project during fellowship, so I was limited to three years, and I happened to start fellowship in the middle of the pandemic, so I knew that there were lower census in pediatric intensive care units in general. I knew that a retrospective study would probably be the best, kind of most feasible during fellowship, and I wanted to find a population where I'd have the largest study to possibly have the largest and the largest effect, and so bronchiolitis was that population that I chose to look at. And this study was done at Beaumont, is that correct? It was done during my fellowship, so that was at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I see. Beaumont itself is a 1,100-bed hospital. How big was the hospital where you did the study? So it was a freestanding children's hospital that had somewhere in the three to 400 patient range. Our ICU had 24 beds, not including the cardiac ICU. So you were lucky enough to have a, an existing data set or an existing database that you, you could mine. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And I had my dates specifically chosen so that my dates ended right before March 2020. So right before that pandemic started. That was very smart of you. And it's it's very advantageous to have the ability to do studies on existing data sets or on existing data. Most hospitals now with EMAR have some sort of data capture, but it's not always as easy as one imagines to actually scrub the data, have the data sets, et cetera. So even though it's easier than it was, it still can be quite challenging to do a large study like you did. And that ended up kind of being part of the difficulty because it was retrospective, finding all the chart review. Um, sometimes things were documented differently, whether it's in a note or nursing documentation. And so that definitely added to the challenge of it. To piggyback onto that, what protocols or what types of things did you have to put in place to make sure that the information was collected in a way that was seamless, efficient, but also the same on as many patients as possible? 
So I think part of that was actually eliminating some of the information. The patients who were in the ICU either came from our ER, an outside ER, the general pediatric floor, or a PCP's office. And so in order to standardize everything, there were some pieces of information that I couldn't use because I didn't have on all the patients, such as kind of ER vitals and things like that. Um, and so again, that limited the amount of information I was able to kind of gather. I think that's a, that's a very important topic. Oftentimes when I'm working with investigators, they want to have all of the data. And I try to help people realize that there's only number one, so much data you can collect, but there's also only so much data that you will actually use. And oftentimes, if you go into other studies done in your own discipline, you can get a sense or you can get an example of the types of data that are essential for a paper to be published. And sometimes that can make the study more approachable simply because you're not dealing with many, many variables that you won't even analyze. And so that's a bit of a strategy to make studies a little bit easier to approach and easier to actually analyze simply by limiting the information. So in your strategy, it was extraneous pieces of information that maybe couldn't be collected or wouldn't fit, et cetera, et cetera. But that study um, is a strategy or study approach is a strategy in terms of actually being able to finish a study. Because oftentimes I will see papers submitted that have so many pieces of information collected, which is nice to have, but that's all it is. It doesn't help the analysis at all. So let me ask you, what were your most surprising findings? Honestly, I was surprised kind of that severity of illness was not a confounding variable. I expected it to be. I know nutrition practices have kind of changed. They are provider dependent and everyone can kind of view variations of severity a little bit different, but I assumed that it would be a confounding variable. And so I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that it wasn't. We did see that both lower risk and higher risk patients had higher odds of intubation when they didn't meet their feeding goal, kind of regardless of, of what their severity was in our two groups. And then I was surprised about the statistical significance in a relatively small study. I know this was single center. I know it was retrospective. And so I wasn't anticipating statistical significance. So I was pleasantly surprised by that as well. Yeah, I think that your point about retrospective and single center, we always have to take findings in that setting with a grain of salt, simply because it, it may be a quirk of the particular place, maybe a quirk of a particular way things are done at that particular center, et cetera. And so in general, if we were to make this a nationwide study, surprising findings in small studies can be hard to replicate. But if the if the finding is strong and after adjustment for things like severity of illness, you're still finding something, that's a hint that that particular finding may itself be actually real. Um, so really, you know, what we have to do is wait for somebody else to do an exactly the same type of study in several centers. And that's that's a hard thing for people to think, well, let's copycat somebody else's study just to make sure that the findings are real. So there is, it's a little bit of trepidation with the strong signal in a small study. And the only way to show that it's real is to, you know, have that done in a, in a larger study, more centers, et cetera, so that that particular center effect isn't the reason why we're seeing this strong association. That makes sense. If you had to do your study over, what would you change? 
So what I used for severity was PRISM scoring. And I know that's not ideal for the bronchiolitis population because a lot of the information that's gathered, we don't typically get in kind of on admission in our children with bronchiolitis, specific labs, things like that. So if I had more time, I would have actually liked to kind of enroll or kind of objectively score patients using a severity score that was more appropriate for this population. However, that would be enlisting a new scoring system that would have been a prospective study to validate the screening tool. So this would have been, I don't think this would have been feasible in three years, but if we did have a way to better kind of divide our patient population in the lower risk and higher risk population, specifically for a bronchiolitis score, I think that would have made a big difference. Yeah, I think that um, sometimes we're hamstrung with the information that we have. And that can be a significant limitation. But as you said, if you want to do the perfect study, it probably takes too long and it probably occupies too much resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, sometimes we have to work with what we have. And, you know, that's another reason why replicating what you've done using a different scoring system in terms of severity of illness, that could possibly strengthen your observation. Um, but I totally agree with you is that sometimes we have what we have. And oftentimes reviewers will ask, oh, I would like you to do X, Y, Z. And the comeback to that is, that's a fantastic suggestion. We don't have access to that information. And even though we have lots of information that's collected electronically in the hospital, sometimes we're lacking something very specific that might be the standard of how studies are done in your own field. And that's where prospective studies over long periods of time can help fill that particular gap. Oftentimes, I'm stuck with a data set that doesn't have something that I really, really want. And that's just the way it is. And so working around that and working with the PRISM score as you did, you successfully were able to navigate that. But again, there are limitations, like there's limitations for everything. Of course. What advice do you have for other investigators? Um, so this was my first kind of publication. Um, and so I think the hardest part was honestly setting up the study. Um, once I had submitted to IRB, I was ready to go. I wanted to jump into data collection right away. But my mentors, who have a lot more experience than I do, cautioned me to make sure I had basically ironed out every single detail before I started data collection having plans in my head, how I would deal with hiccups, what other things kind of troubleshooting even before I started. And again, because this was my first project, those weren't things that I had considered. And so I really appreciated the experience and the expertise of my mentors to kind of essentially slow me down to kind of have everything ready in place before I jumped into the big task of data collection. Yeah, impatience is a virtue, <laughs> except, except when you fall into pitfalls. <laughs> so you were very lucky to work with people who protected you from falling into pitfalls. I was. And I oftentimes I'll see papers that are submitted that I can see the pitfalls that people have fallen into, basically because of not thinking about certain aspects of study design in terms of how things are collected, et cetera, and the limitations to that particular data collection and how groups are allocated, et cetera. So you were very lucky to be in an environment with people who have sort of done this before, and that can be very advantageous, especially when you're first starting out to have a study that is successful, meaning that you're able to complete the study, but not only that, but you're able to publish the study. So that's a full circle. And 
um, having a project go full circle to publication is very gratifying, but it is, as you said, it's very difficult and it takes a lot of assistance, a lot of help from mentors and people who have done that completion of the circle in the past. The team I worked with was fantastic, so very appreciated. You're very lucky. My first clinical research project, I did it all by myself and I never <laughs> published it, even though it was a two-year project because I made so many mistakes. So it, it, very good advice to work with people who have done it before. Let me ask you, what are you studying now? In the time period that we had looked at for the initial study, a feeding protocol was actually kind of rolled out at my training institution. And so one of my colleagues and I at Aspen last year had presented our findings about a feeding algorithm. And so we're in the process of writing that up because we were able to see pretty significant changes with meeting goal feeds, with starting early enroll nutrition, pre and post feeding protocol. I'm also trying to enroll my current unit, so the one at Beaumont Children's Hospital, in VPS, in the National Nutrition Collaborative, to allow us to be a part of a larger multi-center studies, to be sites for that in the future as well. That's excellent. It sounds like this experience for you has altered your career arc in terms of thinking proactively in terms of what's next. The what's next question is always very important, even when you're in the middle of something. And it sounds like you have really thought far ahead in terms of the next project and even the next project that is extremely encouraging in, in terms of your ability to continue with a research trajectory. So, so congratulations to you. Thank you. So I wanted to thank you, Dr. Huck, for your expertise. It was the delight to discuss your work. And we also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review over on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. I'm Kenneth Christopher. Thanks for listening. Thank you.